Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. My guest is Marcus Erickson. Uh, co-founder of Five Gyres, number five, G-Y-R-E-S dot org. We're talking about the uh, global health crisis that's due to uh, plastic and microplastic in our oceans. So, uh, Marcus, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on the uh, on the show. Yeah, yeah, I'm really glad you're here. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, your work at Five Gyres and what inspired it, and then let's uh, let's tackle the problem and talk about it. Sure. The organization began about 10 years ago. I've already been on this on this issue of plastics for 10 years. And then like in 2009, we realized there were still some big unanswered questions. Because all this talk about these fictitious islands of trash in the oceans, but no one knew where they were, how much trash was there, um, and what was the impact on other life. So my wife and I, Anna Cummins, she and I began the organization. We had been out to the North Pacific with Captain Charles Moore, the man that discovered the, the accumulation zone. And, and there was no one going south of the equator. There was no one going to the western Pacific toward Japan or the eastern Atlantic toward the Azores and Great Britain. Just huge unknowns. The Arctic, Antarctic, Equatorial Waters, Bay of Bengal, Mediterranean Sea, all was left for, was open wide for science. And we began launching expeditions. And within about Six years of a launching organization, we had enough data to produce the first estimate of all plastics of all sizes in all oceans. And that big publication, that big number, was 5.25 trillion bits of plastic from a quarter million tons of trash. Right. And that was our, our first big publication. But we've done a whole lot more than that. So we'll so dive um, into it. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe before we dive into it, um, so. I guess your website's called Five Gyres because the gyre is a uh, is what like a spiral or a spiral accumulation of trash in the ocean. Sure. So so gyres are these big circulating currents. North Pacific has two, uh, and the South Pacific has three. Uh, these are the subtropical gyres. So what a gyre looks like it is basically because the Earth is spinning, the atmosphere pulls the ocean in different directions, and it causes it to move. So North Pacific, it's a clockwise rotation. So a plastic bottle leaving California is on its way to Japan in a few years. Then wanting to touch shore, it'll come right back around, zipping toward the north, back to the California current, down south towards Mexico, and back across to Japan. That big giant loop is a gyre, the gyre system. They're natural. They've been around for millions, millions of years. But now they're full of trash, full of microplastic particles. Why is the plastic... um in their microplastic, I, I would envision it as just like plastic bottles and whole pieces of plastic. Did it start out that way or it was micro to begin with? Well, a lot of it does begin as large items. You walk on any beach and you'll see trash washed ashore. You'll find bottles, bottle caps. You'll find cups and plastic bags, straws. When they get out to sea, there are all kinds of mechanisms that tear them apart. Everything from the UV sunlight that makes them brittle, waves then crush it, fish are constantly nibbling at plastics. Any bottle I find out to sea has 
bite marks all over it. Straws are almost gone. Plastic bags are shredded. Foam polystyrene cups and plates are destroyed. So things don't survive intact the long journey to the gyres. What survives is fishing gear. So almost every study we, we look at of what's out in the middle of the ocean, it's by far fishing gear. So when we talk about the gyres... Or, or what? Yes, nets and buoys and rope and line and buckets and crates from, you know, maritime activities. The ocean, the middle of the ocean is full, full of the stuff that lasts the longest, the thickest plastics. But where the harm is happening is near coastlines where the thin, thin film packaging, all that single-use throwaway stuff, the straws, the bottles, the bags, the, the cup lids, the cups, are all being shredded and, and impacting wildlife through ingestion and entanglement. That's where if you want to have more bang for your buck, you hover near coastline and you catch it as it leaves land. Well, because the gyres are ever-moving currents, would it be possible to put something, you know, a, a filter of a certain size in the way of the currents, you know, hang it down off a ship or across, you know, a curtain across a bunch of ships and have the water flow sure. through it and filter out some of the plastics? Well, there's a lot of life out there that you'd like to catch. Migratory routes of organisms, lots of ships. You don't want to create navigational hazards. Um, could it work? Sure, you could catch some of it, but this distribution is so wide. And also what's out there is a fraction of the plastic leaving our land. So if you think of the, the, the quarter million tons that we we estimated floating in the middle of the ocean from 50 years of production, a quarter million tons, we estimate around 8 million tons going in every year. So you've got 32 times the standing stock of floating trash entering every year. The ocean surface is not where it's at. It's, it's, it's almost a trivial amount of the total plastic budget is sitting on the ocean surface in the middle of the gyres. So, so going out there, going after it, I mean, I could see incentivizing fishermen, if you come across a net or a buoy or a bucket or a crate, just grab it and then have a fund that could give them, you know, a dollar a pound or a, a euro per kilo, some minor uh, incentive there that's enough to get the stuff back. And that's what makes sense if you're going to you do any ocean cleanup whatsoever. Um, anywhere else, uh, uh, if you want to get the biggest bang for your buck, it's going to the source, finding the trash as it's being produced, um, even better going way up on land and getting really good at sorting at the point of consumption to where households are sorting their compostables, their biodegradable food waste from their plastics and other other wastes. And those ways being sorted into recyclables, true recyclables, and the residuals, what can't be dealt with through recycling. We find um, communities do that. They, they have high diversion rates away from landfill and away from, from ground waste. Right. And then the plastic in the ocean, you call it microplastic. <clears throat> I mean, it seems like natural forces are breaking it down, but do natural forces only get it so far and then it's still in this toxic form or... Eventually, well, that's the ocean what we don't know. Clean itself up. You know, it's interesting. So, yeah, the ocean will clean itself up. The, the best evidence, like when I was a kid in walking beaches in the 80s, um, we had to bring acetone to the beach to wash the tar off your feet because there was always tar balls. Well, well by the mid 80s, um, there was an international agreement passed that said no more tar, no more, no more rinsing out the hulls of big oil tankers uh, offshore. No more rinsing out all that sludge into the ocean. That was making tar balls. And they were just destroying the beaches, and, the, and they were all over the gyres, in the gyres. Within 10 years oh. of this law, within 10 years, oil on beaches dropped 
significantly, a total drop in the amount of tar found in the ocean, found on beaches. It goes to show that the ocean, it's so dynamic. It's kicking stuff out. It's sinking stuff, washing it ashore. It's getting rid of it. When we did our global assessment, of that quarter million tons, we had four different size fractions. We had the big stuff, big as beach balls. We divided into the stuff as big as water bottles, things as big as lentils, then things as small as pepper flakes. We're counting those separately. We found the smallest particles, there was 100 times less than expected on the sea surface. The sea surface is just not where it's at. The ocean is kicking it out. So that's why I say, you know, if we want to solve this problem, going to the middle of the ocean is really a inefficient use of time and money. If you had millions of bucks now to put this issue, I would go right to communities, remote communities around the world and say, let's get good at, at recycling, diverting our waste, getting rid of the things we throw away that aren't recyclable, and compost our, our organics. You would see a huge drop-off in, in waste in the oceans, and you'd see the oceans spit it out really fast. Well, what, what do you think happens to it in the ocean after a time? Does it sink? Or where does it go? What we think is happening is you know, the smallest microplastics, well, first of all, a lot of it washes back on shore. What leaves our rivers, what's in the gyres, is getting uh, washed ashore on islands or getting kicked out and pushed on main shorelines. Uh, what's there now, the smallest microplastics, what we're finding is a lot of ingestion. So to date, over 1,200 organisms have been found, different species, been found to either ingest or get entangled by plastics. The ones ingesting it, we think that they are excreting it in their fecal pellets, and those things sink. So basically, the ocean life is eating the small stuff, pooping it out, and sinking to the seafloor. So it doesn't wash ashore, it's going to find its way to the seafloor. And if we can stop adding more in, I think that'll happen quickly. Okay, very good. What's, what's the, uh, I mean, we haven't talked about it. I mean, we're just assuming that it's a big problem, but tell me about how much of a problem this is causing? What is the effect on, on fish health and on human health and on the world health? So on, on, on fish health, what we're finding is that um, there's an increase, increasing studies showing that when you, when, you, when you look at plastics out to sea, the burden of toxicity that these particles carry as they absorb things like DDT and PCBs and flame retardants, all these chemicals are sticking to plastics. When animals uh, uh, ingest them, they also ingest all that synthetic chemistry. And in many cases, they're able to, uh, to desorb or, or, or download all, that, all those chemicals into their bodies. And we're finding more and more studies looking at those, those effects by ingestion uh, and taking on those toxins, effects on their bodies. That's been shown in the laboratory. The front line of the research now is looking for large population level impacts. Does the whole population of, let's say, oysters on the East Coast of the United States, do they, they ingest microplastics full of these toxins in realistic uh, concentrations in the environment? Do they have an impact? And that's, that's what we're, where we're finding when we do study it. We do find these little low-level effects here and there. There's a need for more studies. The human health side, there's been a lot of work looking at not just plastic waste, you know, post-consumer, but the pre-consumer plastics. When, you, when you're holding um, uh, adding machine tape from a receipt, there's bisphenol A all over that receipt. It's also in DVDs. It's also in, uh, in, in uh, uh, infant products. So, like, for example, an old rubber ducky is like a phthalate lollipop. It's so full of these, these chemicals used in plastics. So for, for humans, the exposure is sort of daily 
the endocrine disrupting chemicals, carcinogenic chemicals that are in the foods and are packaging the foods and beverages that we consume. So there's a, there's a human health risk there has been shown. Um, and globally, there is talk now about um, uh, the, the potential of microplastics being a global uh, health risk. Just because of the ubiquity of microplastics worldwide, now everywhere we look, we found microplastics, especially microfibers. And it makes sense for a product made by the billions of pounds that's shredding the small particles that are not biodegradable. The dispersal has just gone by diffusion, gone global. We find microplastics in sea ice, the seafloor, beaches everywhere, atmospheric fallout in biota every time we open a, a fish's gut. So what are those impacts? We also know that, that there's a, a, a burden of toxicity on each particle. So there's a potential uh, planetary boundary effect that we need to, to take very seriously because of the ubiquity of this stuff everywhere we look. What's, what's a planetary boundary effect? What does that mean? Uh, that means that, the, the, that there may be biological systems or ecological systems that are impacted by the things we do. Like, for example, uh, the release of DDT back in the 70s and 60s, looking at that, we saw a planetary boundary effect. We saw that because of the volume and the dispersal and the threat to you know, the, the, the shells of the eggs of, of, of raptors, that there was an impact that was happening everywhere we looked around the planet. Mm. That would be a planetary boundary effect. Um, a lot of the chemicals that are in the Stockholm Convention uh, also have uh, planetary boundary effect uh, consequences. Uh, it often looks like chemistry, and there is a lot of conversation about our plastics, the the, the ethylenes and the, the propylenes that are out there. Are they are they have the same level of of harm that some of these other chemicals have? So, um, all right. So the focus should be at the source, if possible, and you know, for better recycling, separation, and all that. I would think you'd have to delve into that world quite a bit. So, what have been the the big reasons that recycling? hasn't been a lot more prevalent. I mean, from what I've heard, you know, worldwide, we still only recycle a very tiny percentage of, of everything we, we consume. Yeah, I would say, by and large, recycling is a failure. Until you design for it, until you require anyone making anything to have an end-of-life plan, a really solid, here's the plan for this product and the component of it. There are some companies that will take back 100% of their product and that becomes a coupon, let's say, half off of the next one, the updated version. There are lease programs, leasing cars, for example, where the car is never yours. It always goes back to the manufacturer. I believe that there should be lease programs for fishing nets. We should, have, uh, we should end the single-use throwaway plastic concept and just require people either you sit in the coffee shop, have your coffee there, or it's to go, you bring your own mug. So these... These kinds of, 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 of things have to happen if recycling is going to work. It's got to be, it's got to be very well thought out and thought out in the context of not just the technical uh, recyclability, but also the social and economic recyclability, that the value chain values the material coming back to the, the um, manufacturer and that people understand the system, not overwhelmed with having to sort things by you know, 100 different parameters, that it's easy easy, economic, and technically possible and designed for all that. Until that happens, recycling will fail. Here in the United States, we don't, we don't demand that. Therefore, recycling is under 10% of what we make compared to what we, what we actually recycle. 
it's a it's an, it's a horrible failure. So unless there's it's what we call EPR, extended producer responsibility. Unless EPR is strong, recycling will be weak. Well, is it strong in any countries in the world, and what's been the effect? I think it, 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 it's better in some of the North European countries, where there is some expectation to design for it. For example, Germany has the Green Dot program, and that, and that, it, that builds EPR into the products. If your product gets a Green Dot on it, then it meets specifications for a true circular economy. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation, they're working really hard on pushing circular economic design, they're working with companies to take greater responsibility for the, for the full life cycle, cycle what they make. But some companies here, for example, Patagonia is a great company. They have an EPR program. Uh, Costa makes sunglasses. They take their glasses back. Uh, Lush Cosmetics, when they found out that there were plastic microbeads you know, in the Great Lakes, that was our published paper a few years back, they stopped putting microbeads in their products. And they have very recyclable materials. You go in their store, it's only paper bags uh, to take your, your, your materials away. They use... Uh, metals whenever possible and glass. Um, so there are companies that are just striving to do to do the right thing that are leading by example. Well, um, is, is there a possibility of, I've heard it called cradle to cradle manufacturing where you design products intending them to be broken down later or to be recycled later? Yeah, and that's that's 100% what, what, uh, what circular economy is all about. So cradle to cradle just means, you know, think of their full, full life of your product. And I know there are some great cradle-to-cradle designs. Uh, there's an office chair I saw where you, you buy one office chair, and that's the only one you need. They have one design, has been, been the same design for decades, and you can buy each individual component, and you can re- install it and repair it yourself. That sure. is awesome circular design. Now, it means that you don't buy chairs so often, but if you buy one chair, and you know it's the last chair you'll need in the next few decades in your office, and they're ergonomically beautiful chairs, very expensive, it pays off in the long run. So you've got yeah, these, and this is called the, the heirloom culture, where you buy something and you buy it to last. Like my dad, for example, still has a pair of leather shoes he bought 30 years ago. They still fit. He treats them like like babies. They're, they're, they're on the shelf in their own, their own place to be, covering the cloth, and they're very nice, and he takes good care of them. It's an heirloom culture. Unlike, you know, you can go to any other little store and buy, you know, cheap sneakers that might last you for a year, if that, before the sole falls off. Yep. And you'll pay, if you if you pay for two or three of those pairs, you might as well have bought a nice pair that'll last you decades. So that's that's the, true. I remember talking to my dad about that, too, and I used to make fun of him for having a leather bag for 30 years or shoes for 20 years, or now I have a different perspective. Yeah, yeah, there's a kind of, of, of elegance in that. You know, if you look at what your own personal plastic footprint is, I think of how many shoes I've gone through the last, you know, 35, 35 years and buy my yeah. own clothes. It's a lot. Not so many now. I'm actually wearing a pair of shoes I bought 10 years ago for a better day. So yeah, that oh, heirloom cool. culture in your clothing, in your in your vehicles. Um, you know, some people buy vehicles and hang on to them uh, and just repair. There's a whole repair economy. We can shift ourselves away from this globalized linear system where we make stuff, a lot of stuff, a lot of poorly designed uh, stuff, and then send it on this one-way direction from the producer to the consumer where the producer washes their hands and responsibility. 
a consumer pays a lot of taxes for cleanup for incinerators and and landfills and it's it's just an expensive process if you create circularity then the taxpayer's burden is, is lessened the producer pays more if they if their product is a really crappy product the producer mm. makes a good product they're just they're making money on the uh, on the repeat customers that need little simple fixes they replace one button or one piece of hey, string uh, or it, you're getting a little bit muffled i don't know if you could adjust your uh, your microphone or phone mm. how's that oh better okay is great. that better all right yeah um you know, I know good behavior wants to drive everything, but it fails, unfortunately. Uh, economically, what are the items that make the most sense to recycle, and how could we rejigger things to to make sure it's economically viable, or we have the right incentives to recycle what needs to be recycled? You know, people adjust easily to the fixes out there. There, there are companies that make canned water, water and aluminum cans. We have no problem drinking soda out of cans or beer out of cans. Put water in cans, and you get rid of all these non-recyclable bottles. Aluminum cans have a really high recovery rate. They have a lot of value inherent to the metal. Um, other things, plastic bags. We don't need plastic bags. People get, get a buy just fine with bringing their own. And paper is a renewable resource. Not the best. It's a lesser evil than plastics, but it's better. Uh, but, re- but reusables are there. Straws, you don't need a plastic straw. Paper straws, there's one company, Aardvark Straws, been around since 1888. The paper straws are there. So you see these economic examples of companies that think within terms of circular economy, the companies exist. The products exist. They may cost a little more, but not for long until, they, until they're producing at scale. Then they're going to replace the, the currently polluting systems. The reason why you know straws and bags and bottles and cups are cheap is because you and I are paying for the management of those poor designs. You and I pay a lot of money to maintain landfills, to maintain incinerators, to deal with you know a MRF, a material recycling facility that has to manage all that stuff. I'd prefer not to do that. I'd I'd prefer and and I'm and my wife and I are pretty close to. So only heaven will come to our house. You know, it's truly recyclable packaging and compostable. In fact, when we go buy things, here's advice to all your listeners. When you buy something, think in terms of packaging. You're buying the packaging and you're buying the product. And find the product package in the smartest way. It's easy. Okay. So what, what, do you, what have you decided is the main methodology or focus of your initiatives? What do you think... Uh, is going to make the most help? Well, the most help, I think, you know, what we're involved in and sort of where the world is going, and where I would send investors, if you had $10 bucks right now to spend, I'd say let's scale the decentralized waste management strategy. What we're seeing happening throughout Southeast Asia right now, there are a few nonprofit organizations like Mother Earth Foundation and YPBB, Gaia, Greenpeace that are working there to build neighborhood-sized waste management. And what they do is they get really good at composting. They do door-to-door collection of food waste, door-to-door collection of recyclables, um, and all the residuals, everything. And they teach people how to sort it. And what you end up with is a lot of re- recyclable materials. And when they're, when they're collected door-to-door, the collector gets to keep all the recyclables and make extra money that way. 
and the collector then brings the food scraps and the rest of the stuff back to the zero waste facility where it gets composted and the residuals then you need to take a hard look at and ask your community, do we need these non-recyclable, non-compostable things? So we're seeing by doing that, communities are getting up to 80% diversion rates away from landfills and incinerators. And it's saving our cities hmm. from trash. So I would send anyone, if you were the biggest bang for your buck, to have a huge impact. Go to the decentralized waste management model. Imagine like, like I'm sitting here in my car in Los Angeles on, on the phone right now. I'm looking in L.A., and a guy just drove by with a truck full of metal, and he's our neighborhood scrap metal collector. And this yeah. is a neighborhood recycler. This, it's very timely. He just drove by. That if our, if our neighborhood was, was focused on door-to-door collection of, of glass, metals, paper, uh, plastics um, for recycling, and then the other stuff, the compostables, they go in the green bin, recyclables in the blue bin, the rest of the stuff in the black bin, and take a good look at that. How many plastic bags or bottles are in there? Yeah. As that happens door-to-door during the community, you then have such great diversion rates that your landfill becomes kind of unnecessary, and that's happening. It's happening in Southeast Asia. In New Zealand, I was there just now. There's a company I met, Extreme Zero Waste. They now have eight cities employing their decentralized waste management system. And this hmm. is the exact same thing. They are so good at composting they take old appliances you walk in their facility and there's a an appliance refurbishing station there's a, a furniture repair there's earthworm right. bins lining one wall they have a library of all the used books they pulled out of waste they're suited diversion that they close down their community's landfill in new zealand in this little town within the, within the first three years that's amazing and that kind yeah. of happened worldwide it's the biggest bang for your buck small community level decentralized waste management Waste. Well, I think there's garbage mafias that wouldn't allow you to, to do that and take people's garbage and saying you have to, it has to be taken, you know, be taken by the large companies, et cetera. You mean uh, garbage mafias like the, the, the garbage mafias? Mafia, but, but the large well, companies actually, are. that are already collecting garbage. You know? Sure. Well, it, it, it's funny you say that. So companies like Waste Management, I don't think that they would be offended if a community got good at recycling and good at composting. They're just movers of stuff. They can move those materials from one neighborhood to its local um, composting facility. So they can, get, they can get some business out of it. I would think, you know, from, uh, when you have a heart-to-heart with them, they would say, yes, if the community gets good, so good at waste, zero-waste systems, they don't need us, it's a better world. Now, when you said trash mafia, they do exist. In some parts of the world, for example, in, in India, where I was doing this kind of work, there are trash mafias with multiple layers of waste collection and waste movement that don't like a whole lot of interference. But you can work around that stuff. I mean, those illegal enterprises exist, but you can get around that stuff. I mean, waste is a big, it's sure. a big issue. It's a big commodity. Yeah, definitely. Well, very good. I mean, there, we're... we're... Be, now, the same thing is where there's money, there's going to be uh, potentially some uh, uh, some bad things going on. So that's why the trash mafia exists. Okay. Well, very good. Um, you know, we've come to the end of the call. Uh, what are some resources that people can get? You know, the, I guess your website, fivegyres.org. What other resources can they have uh, that would help them learn more about recycling, maybe implement a neighborhood program and find out about more of what you're doing? I think fivegyres.org. Look at our campaign on uh, foam polystyrene. Uh, we're launching something soon called the Trash Blitz. 
and, and any community can invite us over to do a very thorough investigation of your plastic footprint and recommend mitigations. But other sites to go check out, you know, Gaia, G-A-I-A, they're working really hard in Southeast Asia on this decentralized MOF system. They're really, really good. You know, most cities have recycle programs. Find out in your city, you know, what is what the recycling rules are. Because I find a lot of people just don't know. And then the last thing is find out who in your city is working on the plastics issue. It's become so big these days. There are a lot of local community groups that are working on eliminating the throwaway product uh, system, are looking to build farmers markets locally. Uh, there are co-ops being built locally that you can buy things in bulk. So I think it's easy to get involved locally in ways that can zero waste your, your home, your office, your school, your community. All right, Marcus. Well, thank you so much for coming on the call. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I enjoyed talking here. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.